Good morning and welcome to Journey. I got to tell you, I have a soft place in my heart for assurance. It was 36 years ago uh, this month um, that we adopted a baby boy. Um, and uh, through, I don't know if it was through assurance, it was kind of the beginning startup of this organization. Uh, our son Kyle, uh, we were desperate for children. And uh, God provided a, a beautiful little boy, awesome little boy on uh, May 17th, and so we're going to celebrate his 36th birthday here, or he's going to celebrate over there. And what's amazing is on the day I was writing this sermon that my son finally gave me permission to tell people publicly that he was going to be a dad. So I'm going to be a grandfather again. So uh, we had known that for um, a few weeks and hadn't been able to tell, you know, that, that whole deal. Uh, but we were so excited to talk about that. Actually, his wife, Ashley, has a big hand in that as well. Um, but um, that's going to be our second grandchild. That's what's notable right here today, all right? So we're real excited to be able to share that, and we're, we're so pumped. I don't know if I've mentioned I have a granddaughter or not, uh, but I do. And uh, so anyway, she's going to be here next week. It's supposed to be here today. But uh, anyway, there's something special about birth, isn't it? And so today we're going to celebrate birth. We're going to celebrate by wishing you all happy Mother's Day for those who are mothers. Uh, but uh, we're going to celebrate that in other ways as well, whether it's a planned birth or an unplanned birth. And what I love about assurance is they help, in many cases, the unplanned uh, pregnancy. Uh, but, you know, a lot of couples spend a lot of time uh, thinking about when are we going to have a baby? When do we want to start our family? And uh, in some cases, <coughs> it's waiting to tell their education is complete or until they're settled in a job or in a community where they can afford a baby. Let me give you a hint. You'll never be able to afford a baby. Just do it, all right, uh, because it's one of, the, one of the greatest blessings that you could possibly have. But anyway, we've been talking in this series. We began this series last week called Essential Church, and we just talked about the fact that our world, our culture doesn't value the church, but God has an amazing plan for the church, and God has um, an essential purpose for the church. And we talked about that. We focused in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus said, I will build my church, and we talked about why the church is so important, uh, because it belongs to Jesus, because it's His church, because the church is, is necessary in our world, the purpose of the church today. And today we're going to talk about the next step in that, the church's birth, basically, is uh, why we're all talking about being born today, right? So Jesus had a vision, and He had a plan for His church to exist. His life, His teachings, His death, His burial, His resurrection, all these things set the stage for the church to begin and define what the church would be like. And even before the church existed, Jesus' time with the 12 disciples was a foreshadowing of the community that the church would provide. It was what the church should be like. The whole idea of discipling, of encouraging, of multiplying, of passing it down to generations, everything that the church does today, Jesus modeled that and taught that. And he kept talking about his kingdom and at times it seems like in Jesus' earthly ministry that the kingdom was just about to happen. It was just about to pop up. I mean, you imagine the day that Jesus was feeding 5,000 people and his disciples knew that something was going to come. And imagine them saying, today would be a great day to start the church. I mean, we got a crowd. Let's just start the church today. And so there were times of great popularity when Jesus, it just seemed like the church was about to begin. And then there were times uh, that reached a point in Jesus' ministry where he began to talk about how difficult it was to be a follower. And the crowd diminished down to a much smaller group, much smaller, just a handful of people at times. 
And, and opposition rose against him, and the disciples began to think, well, this probably isn't going to happen, you know, because we're going the wrong direction now. And then on Palm Sunday, remember that, the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, and now the people were putting their robes down and palms down, uh, branches down for Jesus to ride that donkey on like a king. And I'm sure that many of them thought, today would be a great day to start the kingdom. And yet, we know what happened later on that week, that Jesus was hung on a cross. He was crucified, was dead. And I'm sure that there, at that point, his disciples thought, well, that prediction has all happened. It's, it's not going to work. And even some of them, we're told, went back to fishing. They had been fishermen, and they went back. At, even after seeing Jesus' resurrection, they assumed that it was all a great thing, but now it's over. And Jesus had to, you know, kind of regather them and had to encourage them and recommission them. And so what happened next? Because that's kind of where we leave, where the Gospels leave us in John 21, we, you know, Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, you've got to hang in there, and, and it's not over yet. The story's about to begin. And so we find the next chapter of Jesus' story, and we find the birth of the church in the book of Acts. Now, Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts as well, so it's a very seamless transition from one to the other. And so Luke goes from the resurrection, the appearance of Jesus uh, after his resurrection, and Jesus hung around. In fact, we don't have a ton of information, but basically we know that he was around on the earth for 40 days, appearing at times to hundreds of people to prove his resurrection, to encouraging them. And, and, and one point he spoke about, uh, specifically about the kingdom of God, he said this, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he began to excite them again, and they thought, now that Jesus is back from the dead, now we got that behind us, now we're going to start the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, this is not the moment, this is not the time. You know, we call the last few verses that we read there uh, the Great Commission, and it's listed most notably in Matthew chapter 28, and Mark chapter 16 mentions it as well uh, and records the words of Jesus. Jesus' command to go and make disciples. And I'm sure that knowing that, they're like, well, how do we do that? And what is the vehicle that we do that in? And how, you know, how, how can we all encourage each other in that? There's only about, you know, a few of us here. What do we do? But Jesus said, no, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to prepare. And so encouraged the disciples went back to Jerusalem, and they went into an upper room, and they met with 120 believers. Jesus went back into heaven to be with his Father. He told them, just go pray and wait. And the Bible says that they all joined together constantly in prayer. And then for 10 days, they prayed, encouraging one another, and sought God's will. You know, whenever we seek God's will, we might give God, we might give God 10 minutes. Rarely do we give God 10 days. Maybe we don't see the movement of God because we're not giving God this kind of commitment. I know it's hard in our world, but, but we don't even come close to that. Now, as they met together and they prayed, I really doubt that they had any idea what was about to happen. And if you haven't studied this, maybe you don't know as well, but, but I'll tell you one thing they didn't do. They didn't plant a church plant. Nobody said, why don't we start a church in Jerusalem? That's a great idea. And they didn't sit around and go, let's, let's kick it off with a series of services, they didn't have any concept of what that was. 
But God was working through his Holy Spirit. And through their obedience and their commitment and prayer, the church was being conceived. And they didn't even realize what was happening. And the church was going to be given its corporate life, its corporate identity by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit, in fact, that had conceived Jesus some 30 or more years before. And the church would be born of the Holy Spirit in power. And we're going to see an amazing demonstration of the Spirit of God as the church comes to life here. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is the source of life. He is the source of life. And we are given His Spirit. We'll talk about that here in a few moments. But keep that in mind and see the moving of the Spirit in this whole thing. So to recap real quick, Jesus was on the earth for 40 days after His resurrection. The church prayed and sought God for 10 days after He went up into heaven and ascended to be with the Father. At the end of that period was a natural, was a holiday, a Jewish holiday called the Day of Pentecost. Now, we don't, we're not familiar with that for the most part because we're not Jewish, most of us, and we don't follow the feast days, but Pentecost basically means 50, really simple, 50 days after Passover, which is our Easter. Remember, they were in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples went in to celebrate Passover, and so that was Passover day on that Sunday or that weekend, and then 50 days later was another feast that they used to commemorate uh, God's movement in the past. And what the Pentecost, Pentecost commemorated was God's covenant with Noah. I don't know if you knew that or not, but remember back when Noah got out of the ark and began a new life with a new earth and new uh, kind of a new beginning, God celebra- celebrated that with Noah and they called that Pentecost. And later on, they celebrated Pentecost again with the giving of the law to Moses. So in both of these situations, God was starting something new. And Pentecost was a reminder, a celebration of a new birth, the people of God. Isn't that kind of cool? And what an appropriate thing to happen on the day of Pentecost. You think that was a coincidence? Probably not, all right? But on the day of Pentecost, something new and something fresh began as God chose a new direction with his people, a new way to to deal with them. And this church that Jesus had planned and had laid all the groundwork for began on that day. But you know, for the new church to begin, though, there seemed to be two requirements that had to be met. Two requirements. First of all, they had to be united. They had to be united together. Remember Judas, the traitor? Don't you get the idea that Judas probably caused problems all the time? He was the instigator, the the problem, you know, the the arguer about everything. Well, Judas was gone. He had uh, had taken his life after he betrayed Jesus. They replaced him with Matthias uh, early in the book of Acts. And they came together, and they were all in one place. They were of one accord, not a Honda accord, but a spirit of oneness. They were all together in one place. They were gathered together. And in heart and mind, God didn't need a 1,000 people to be in his church. He could do it with a handful, but they had to be all in and in together and all together. And so they were. That was the first requirement was unified. Secondly, they had to be gathered. They had to be gathered in one place. They couldn't be scattered. After Jesus' death, the disciples scattered. And so part of this whole idea of planning the church and and the church's beginning was that his people had to come back together. You know, like we said last week, the word church actually means assembly. It means coming together for a purpose and a reason, a, a common movement. And from his very conception, Christianity has really been a social movement, people who came together for a specific reason. And that's why it's so hard for us to feel like that, or such a stretch to say that we're part of a church if we don't gather with the church. 
except in extreme or, uh, or impossible circumstances. See, church membership isn't real unless we're really active and part of a church. I'll never forget my first ministry. It's a small town just north of here. And I was so excited to be out of school. I was going to set the world on fire and knew everybody was just waiting for me to get there and, and, and make it happen, you know. And so I was excited. So everybody I met, I invited them to church. But I began to hit this wall. And the wall was that everybody already belonged to a church. Now, I'd never seen that before, but everybody I talked to told me that they already belonged to a church. And I won't say the church. You might, you might belong to that church for all I know. But anyway, I belong to this church, and I'm like, man, I'm here, and we're in a rural area. This must be a massive, must be a mega church out here in the middle of nowhere. And I kept asking, you know, I always remember this church. And finally, one of our guys, one of our, our elders, I'm like, I got to know where this church is. He goes, it's right in front of my house. It runs like 25 people. And I'm like, well, how could everybody be a member of this church and, and it not be a big church? And, and I realized that, you know, sometimes we claim membership when we're not a member of anything. So to be a, a member of things, you got to be a part of things. You have to be an arm, a leg, a part of the body of Christ, which is how the, the Bible describes that. So the first church was a church began with active people together, all in one heart, one mind, in one place. They were together. The Spirit was moving, and the church began. We can't understand the moving of the Spirit, but here's how it says in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit that began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Bible uses two symbols here to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. How do you describe the indescribable? It was the only thing that, that Luke could describe it with was, was these two symbols, wind and fire. It says that they heard a sound that came out of heaven. It originated from heaven and came down like a strong and violent wind that filled the whole house. It wasn't a gentle breeze, you know, kind of moving through the doors and windows. It was a violent wind that was deafening. I've never heard a tornado. Anybody ever heard a tornado on its way? Some of you have. I think maybe it's like that. It's just terrifying. It's like a freight train coming through. And I think that's kind of what it was like. It filled the room. In John chapter 3, Jesus used the image of wind to explain the coming and the going of the Holy Spirit. When he was talking to Nicodemus, he says, the Spirit comes and goes as it wills, and nobody can determine that or limit that, kind of like the wind is today. And so that was the, the, the sound. The symbol of fire was used by God in the Old Testament, remember, to show his presence. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night kind of moved. God was moving in the fire. God was guiding them. The wind illustrates the pervasiveness of the Spirit, that it goes everywhere. It filled the place. And the fire illustrates the guidance that the Spirit would provide. And together, those two symbols that are pretty notable um, Together, I'm sure it was a little bit overwhelming. I mean, to the senses, you can, can imagine that, and probably terrifying. And I was thinking about this, and, I, and I, I went back, and some of you will remember, but others of you have no idea what this is. But remember several years ago, going back, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember that movie? Do you remember when they were in the cave and they found the Ark of the Covenant? If you remember that or not. But I mean, it just went now, They opened it up, the, the, the Germans did in the movie. And, and it, there was a noise that came out, and there was light that was going, flashing everywhere. I went back and looked at the clip to remind myself. 
But, uh, but it was amazing, and it was terrifying, and then their faces began to melt off. But that's another story, all right? Um, I think it was a little bit like that. Nobody was wondering, why, you know, is this normal? No, it's not normal. Some major things are happening. Right? The Spirit is moving in that place. Now, we don't have that kind of activity today, which is a comforting a little bit, but we may be on the wrong side of that. We may be on the less active side. We, maybe we ought to see that and experience that a little bit more. But anyway, the, move, the Spirit was moving to show His presence and His power and encourage them and not terrify them. I don't think they were terrified once they began to just experience this building of God. It was a comforting thing. It encouraged them. The fire then separated to form what seemed to be tongues of flames that were over the head of each believer that were gathered there. We might call it a halo uh, of some sort maybe. And this was a sign of the Spirit's power, and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues and languages that they didn't know. Now, here this is really interesting. God had a plan to expand this this, um, newborn church immediately by taking it international. And and as we go on and read, we see what really happened here. It says, uh, continuing on Acts 2, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together and bewildered them because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, are all these who are speaking Galileans, and how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors there from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? So maybe we might ask, what does this mean? What is going on here? Well, by now, I think the church has left the building. I think the church has left the upper room because they were up there in one place, and they're now in the streets that were full of people who had come together. Remember why they had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of of Pentecost. They had come in to celebrate, and they were there from all over the known world at that time. There were plenty of locals there, but there were Jews from all over the place. The Jews had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Think back about the Old Testament. Remember Jews had been carried off to Babylonia, and the Medes and Persians had taken them and other places, and then they had lost their identity, and so they, they were kind of a, a scattered around, and then the Roman Empire came in, and they opened up roads and shipping and travel and everything else. So the Jews had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire called the Diaspora, which was a, obviously disbursement, and, and, but they always returned back to Jerusalem to celebrate some of the feasts, maybe once a year, and many of them had come back for the Feast of Pentecost. And many of them didn't even know their native language by this point. They didn't know Hebrew or Aramaic, which was the common language of that day. But they had their own language, and they actually heard in their own language. Soon a crowd of people came together. Everybody was excited. People were amazed. People were curious. They saw the flames of fire. They probably heard the wind and everything. Can you imagine what that was like? And can you just see how well-planned the church's birth was? It wasn't just like, oh, this just happened. God had a plan, and God made it happen in just the right place and the right time. And what was amazing is that all of these people would take back what they had learned and what they experienced. They would take it back home with them when they went back to all these other places, and the church would then spread around the world. God was working and moving in His special way. It was a powerful moment. 
What do you do in moments like that? Do you just say, wow, this is great. Let's enjoy it. No. The disciples ex- exploited the moment by saying, let's don't waste the opportunity. And Peter, who is one of the boldest ones, he got up and he began to speak to the crowd. And he preached the first gospel sermon in the first church service. Every person hearing in their own language, and he began to preach about Jesus. Now, if you notice there that all of the people seemingly there were Jews or converts to Judaism. And so they knew the Old Testament. They had studied the Old Testament prophets. And so he begins with the words of the prophet Joel, who, who, and if you read this, I'm not going to read it all to you, but in Acts 2, Joel said in the last days that God would pour out his spirit on all people and he would show wonders and signs which would precede the day of the Lord. And then Peter connects this prophecy to Jesus who had worked miracles and wonders and signs. And then he goes on to preach the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, revealing him as the promised Messiah that they'd all been looking for. And he just connects the dots for the people who were searching for the Messiah. And he ends that sermon in verse 36 of Acts 2 by saying, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God made Jesus that you put to death. And I would say by this time, the wind had probably died down, and I would say the crowd were, were pretty sober because they were realizing what was going on, but this last line was a punch in the gut. You crucified him. You put him to death. I'm sure that some of the people who were there that night or that day had been in the crowd calling for Jesus' blood. And I'm sure that there was plenty of conversation. Remember, this is 50 days or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, and the word was out there. They still talked about Jesus. Some people hearing it probably for the first time. It was a very fresh news story for a lot of them. And Peter said, this is what you did. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for even those in Versailles in 2021, for everyone, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this this, uh, corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's amazing, isn't it? The people were moved by the message. They were moved by what they had seen. This, this was an obvious movement of God, and they were convinced of the truth that Peter had been preaching. They were convicted of their sins. And so they said, what do we do in light of this? How do we respond to this? And so Peter told them, "Be repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who's been putting on this church service to start with. In your own lives, you'll be filled with the Spirit. And the crowd that day must have been huge. I said they had to have left the upper room because there were thousands of people because 3,000 of them believed and were baptized that very day. More than likely, there were some who didn't respond, but 3,000 people did. The church was born and immediately became a megachurch, immediately, the day it was born. And then the church began to spread as it does and go around the world. 
And then the next few verses tell us about the life of the early church, what this baby church did. It didn't stay a baby very long because the people came together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the miracles by, by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in their in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and joined the favor of all the people. And the Lord added their number daily those who were being saved. This is the life of the church. Do you see the pattern that the church had, how important the gathering was to them? They were devoted to teaching together, devoted to fellowship. They shared breaking bread, communion together. They all were together. They had all things in common. People sold their property and gave it to other people willingly. They just gave it away because there was a need. They met together in the temple courts every day. They opened their homes up to people, and the Lord added their number daily, those who were being saved. The church was exploding. And it was their lifeline. It was not an option. It was literally their lifeline, not only to God, but to each other, to other believers. It was what they lived for. It was as essential as breath itself, and it was such a magnetic force that not only did people, were they magnetized and drawn to it, that even its critics had to admire it. Even the critics, the outsiders who didn't even believe, they said, this is something new and incredible. You know, we've been talking about how essential the church is to us, but the church is even more essential to those who are outside and those who are in need. This is so evident in the early church, and, and the historians, the secular historians record that. In the early fourth century, famine and war had afflicted the city of Caesarea. So they were beat down, and they were broken, and then the plague hit. And there was no resources to care for people. The city leaders couldn't care for those in need, and people began fleeing the city, but leaving their homes. But one group stayed behind. You know who it was? The Christians. The Christians stayed behind. And, and a historian of that day, his name was Espius, said all day long, some of them, the Christians, rendered to the dying, or tended to the dying, and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to all of them. Espus goes on to say that because of their compassion in the midst of the plague, that Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. That's a secular historian saying that. A few decades later, the last pagan emperor, his name was Julian the Apostate, recognized that Christian practice of compassion was one of the causes behind the transformation of the faith from a small involvement of people, a small movement on the edge, to the cultural ascendancy of a huge movement changing the world. He wrote to a pagan priest and said this, when it comes about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priest, then I think the impious Galileans, the Christians, observed this fact, and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only the poor, their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. So Julian the emperor is chastising the pagan priests and said, you need to be more like Christians because they're taking care of everybody else. They're poor and ours as well. The church had an amazing beginning. 
an amazing start. And I, I, I think we've just touched the edge. We can't imagine what it might be like. But guys, let's make sure today that the church gets new life in a time when the world needs the church maybe more than ever. Let's make sure that the, the church continues on to live a life of activity and compassion and, and a, a just an essential presence in our world. Because Christ is alive. He is moving in us, and the only way that it doesn't happen is when we dampen it, when we tamp it down, and we get distracted, and we ignore what should cause us the greatest joy in life. The church had an amazing birth. The church has had several rebirths and revivals through the years. Next week, we're going to talk about how we got from that day to today. I'm excited about that. I'd love to hear that story of the church down through history, how we got here. We ought to know that, and we ought to understand how God has preserved the church because it was important then, it's essential all the way down through time, how the church has gone through revivals through the years, and that God calls us today to revival. You know, I, I'm noticing something, and I'm hearing more and more that people are, are seeking revival, seeking and longing to see God do, do it again. Do it again. That ought to be our prayer that God would do. And you know, what I've seen is that we all want revival, but we want somebody else to start it. We want to join in after we see it going, you know, but, but really, revival has to begin in us, and then it begins to catch, and God begins to move. So I want to challenge you, if you are a believer, to pray and seek the Holy Spirit's power and revival in your own heart, and then it gets contagious, and we can't contain it. It, it goes outside of us. And seek rebirth in his church. Our world needs the church to be revived again. We all need God to do it again in our world. But it starts with us. That would be my challenge to us as believers, knowing and being reminded of this amazing beginning of the church. What do we do next? God, do it again in us. For those who maybe who are here today who are not yet a believers, I would challenge you to seek your own birth in Christ. And that scripture I read a few moments ago referred to about John chapter 3 of the Spirit moving like the wind. Jesus said there, you, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. You must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And then just a little bit later, he says what is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is where we get our life through Jesus. If you have never experienced that birth, that new birth into Jesus, I would love to talk to you about that. I want that for you, and God wants that for you, but only you can seek that. Only you can, can be open and willing for God to move in your life and to bring you new life and beginning, not only in your personal life, but into the body, the church of Jesus Christ. Guys, I'm excited about what God's going to do. I'm looking forward to the next week. Then the next week, we're going to talk about a victorious church. We've got an awesome future Man, we got an awesome past. We have an incredible present that we need to be enhancing, but we got a future that is out of this world, literally, out of this world, all right? We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that coming up.